Who can believe what we have heard? And for whose sake has the Lord's arm been revealed? He grew up like a young plant before us, like a root from dry ground. He possessed no splendid form for us to see, no desirable appearance. He was despised and avoided by others, a man who suffered, who knew sickness well, like someone from whom people hid their faces. He was despised and we didn't think about him. It was certainly our sickness that he carried and our sufferings that he bore, but we thought him afflicted, struck down by God and tormented. He was pierced because of our rebellions and crushed because of our crimes. He bore the punishment that made us whole. By his wounds, we are healed. Like sheep, we had all wandered away, each going its own way. But the Lord let fall on him all our crimes. He was oppressed and tormented, but didn't open his mouth. Like a lamb being brought to slaughter, like a ewe silent before her shearers, he didn't open his mouth. Due to an unjust ruling, he was taken away, and his fate, who will think about it? He was eliminated from the land of the living, struck dead because of my people's rebellion. His grave was among the wicked, his tomb with evildoers, though he had done no violence and had spoken nothing false. But the Lord wanted to crush him and to make him suffer. If his life is offers, offered as restitution, he will see, see his offspring. He will enjoy long life. The Lord's plans will come to fruition through him. After his deep anguish, he will see light and he will be satisfied. Through his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will make many righteous and will bear their guilt. Therefore, I will give him a share with the great and he will divide the spoil with the strong in return for exposing his life to death and being numbered with rebels though he carried the sin of many and pleaded on behalf of those who rebelled. Thanks, Sarah. So here we find one of the most difficult and maybe even triggering passage of the Bible, Isaiah's suffering servant. So our series continues focusing on the creed, on the who and what of our belief. It's hard not to hear these words as unbelievable. The first line tells the story. It says, who has believed our message? And might as well say, who could believe our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? On this Trinity Sunday, it's only by this outgoing gift of God, this gift of revelation that we might ever imagine believing in a God whose mighty arm is so disfigured that our lives and our ideas about God could be transfigured in this way. Isaiah, writing several hundreds of years prior to Jesus's birth, during exile, cast a vision for hope in healing and renewal amidst the grim reality of violence and dislocation and occupation. To hear that their would-be savior would be a sufferer, maybe it was confusing, but maybe it was also a little bit of a comfort to them because that was also their lot. They needed to make sense of their suffering and their oppression. They needed to know 
that oppression and affliction, being led like a lamb to the slaughter was going to be denormalized by someone who really got it, by someone who stood with them, by someone who had been there and gone through that. This feels like a really valuable lesson for anyone who would call themselves a leader. Even the creed picks up on the vitality of suffering for faith and faithfulness to God. So last week we had that hard to swallow pill line about Jesus being conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. It's maybe a primitive nod that Jesus was both of divine and human stock. He was equal and whole parts us and utterly not us. It surely says something important about how God chooses to show up and work in the world, that God's most explicit action, that God's most important intervention comes by the means of a teenage girl named Mary, comes via vulnerability. For those of us who have had a baby or been close to someone who has had a baby or want to have a baby, maybe you're tuned into this sort of vulnerability. The riskiness of God would be on full display as Mary moves through Nazareth carrying the God child. Chris Green did a really beautiful job with this last week, detailing the ways that Mary's love for Jesus and participation in God's work gives us a template for faith and faithfulness. I was struck, though, that in studying and working through this creed, that there are three human names present in this doc, which is a really strange move for kind of an articles of incorporation for the beliefs of a church. So those three people are obviously Jesus, the most human one, but also Mary and Pontius Pilate. There are maybe a couple things going on here. I think that, that there are names included in the creed. I think that it means that names matter. It was important for Christians then, and it's important for us Christians now to remember that Christianity isn't just a philosophy or a series of ideas, but a historical fact, a story of real people in real places with real names interacting with the ultimately real triune God. Jesus, the eternal son, stands right in the middle of these two other names, Mary and Pilate, these two polar opposite receptions of God. Mary's yes and Pilate's resounding no. You see, Mary received God's word and it grew inside of her as that word became flesh. Pilate snuffed out God's word. Pilate washed his hands of Jesus' faith. Writing on um, Dr. Martin Luther King's power of unearned suffering, Micah Edmondson um, sees the result of this uh, yes and no uh, in Dr. King's civil rights uh, leadership and activism. He says that uh, Dr. King's whole life and ministry was based on the conviction, and this is what uh, Micah Edmondson says, he says that God's yes will always have the final say over our no. 
that God's justice will always have the final say over our injustice. And that's what's hinted at in the creed and Mary's yes and Pilate's no. But it is a little weird that Pilate makes his way in this creed. We, I don't know that he would be in there if I was writing this. Um, theologian Karl Barth comments on how Pilate enters the creed, and he says that Pilate enters the creed like a dog into a nice room. Uh, I think that's a, a wry uh, comment to, to talk about how out of place and ready to run roughshod that Pilate seems. Oftentimes, Pilate's kind of let off the hook uh, in this story. We remember that he washes his hands. He's, he's sort of like a mid-level manager of the Roman Empire. He's not looking to get too involved with the affairs of a would-be religious uprising amongst the pesky Jews. So he hands Jesus over to the corrupt religious elite, and he goes on with the affairs of empire building and faux peacemaking. I'm sure the economy was really humming along for uh, Pilate's governance. The fact, though, that Pilate, even now and forever, is called out in our creed for being the human face of persecution and suffering of Jesus is a cautionary tale for anyone. It's a cautionary tale for us, for any of us with power, any of us who cozy up to power, or any of us who are happily nested in kind of the sweet spot of power, where you reap all the benefits of power, but you don't feel like you really need to take any final blame for when it goes wrong. So this Mary-Pilate contrast is a tragic reminder that in Sam Wells' words, the power is a gift, and it's principally given to set people free. Mary understood that, and Mary embraced this power to, to bear the liberator who would set us all free from our sin and set us free from death. Pilate didn't bear power that way. He bore a distorted, mutant form of power that further enslaved us, further crucified Jesus. So names matter and naming names matter. This is why... There's been such a movement in the last couple weeks to say names, to say Maude Arbery's name, to say Breonna Taylor's name, to say George Floyd's name. Because our memories have to hone in on these real life moments, these real life people, these real life names, not in the, uh, not in the abstract, but, but in the particular where Power is being used either with God or against God, where power is being used to either bear suffering or to inflict suffering. So names matter in the story of Jesus. I can't help but also draw a couple more conclusions from this line of the creed, which rings out with startling and uncomfortable specificity. Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. There's no doubt that Jesus was indeed a man of suffering, one familiar with pain, as Isaiah 53 says. I think because he was a man of suffering, that means that suffering matters. There's some criticism 
of the creed that for how specific it is about Jesus's birth and Jesus's death, it doesn't really give us a whole lot of information about what came in between. Shouldn't our belief include Jesus's teaching and Jesus's life? The answer to that specific critique is often given that Jesus's suffering, which culminates under Pontius Pilate, characterizes Jesus's whole life. That Jesus's life was suffering. That, and if that's true, that suffering matters because Jesus's life was full of suffering. There are a couple of particular moments that seem really acute and noticeable. We might remember Jesus's weeping at Lazarus's graveside. Can't help but think that that whole scene must have been just a terrible mess of grief. All of the feelings of grief swirling around Lazarus's family and friends. With Lazarus's sister, Martha, she actually kind of accuses Jesus. She said, why did you take so long? If you had been here, our brother wouldn't have died. And Jesus himself wept. He suffered with Lazarus. He suffered with Mary and Martha. Or maybe when you think of Jesus's life as suffering, you think of Jesus sweating blood at Gethsemane as he struggled with the Father, agonizing over his own ability to stay true to his calling and to ultimately submit to his own death. Philippians 2 tells that story um, really vividly and in grand scale about how Jesus emptied his own life to become a servant, even to death, death on a cross. So suffering is in the background, but it's so also so foregrounded in Jesus's life and identity. It must mean that somehow suffering matters. This is kind of a tricky thing to say. It's not so straightforward. Because while most of us spend most of our waking and restless hours of our lives trying to desperately avoid suffering at all costs, there's also kind of this uh, other side of the coin temptation to valorize suffering, to say that all suffering is meaningful and, and worthwhile and to, to jump too fast to answer that, to glorify it, to jump into fights that aren't ours or to become martyrs for causes that don't require suffering. Jesus, it seems, is making a new way. Jesus is making a, a way where suffering is not to be either avoided or glorified but where suffering deeply matters. I'm reading this book uh, called Motherhood. It's by a theologian, Natalie Carnes, who works at Baylor. And she reflects on this sort of substantial, meaningful suffering. She speaks deeply and beautiful about teaching her daughters how and when to say yes and when to say no to suffering. She kind of untangles all of the complications of all this. You see, as white people, her daughters will get to choose their engagement with suffering. Many of us will have the privilege and ability to buffer from the suffering in the world with, uh, and, and the suffering of our neighbors if we want to. We can press mute. We can uninstall the app, right? 
as a mom, she can also choose how much suffering her daughters will be subjected to. Rach and I are really struggling with that with our kids right now. How much do we talk to them about this? How much do we, how much do we think they can handle? How much do we think we can handle? I'm sympathetic to this. I want my kids to suffer less than the least amount possible. I don't want to subject them to any more than I think that they can handle. I have no idea what I think they can handle. But then on the other hand, she knows that as, a, as women, her daughters will be inherently more vulnerable than others. That they won't always have a choice not to suffer or a choice to avoid unsafety. As a mom, not every risk or suffering should be avoided for her girl's growth and experience. This is what she's wrestling with. She says, if my response to your vulnerability, she's writing to her daughter, if my response to your vulnerability is to cut you off from the vulnerable ones of the world, then I maim your soul and distance you from Christ. As you can see, it's hard to say that all suffering is either good or bad, but it's essential to say that suffering matters. This is a really powerful thing for us to struggle with as people pour into the streets to protest for black lives and against the multiferous forces of death which cause the suffering and death of black people in our country from really obvious things. It's, it's so easy to watch some of these videos and see the results of militant policing and racism, but also it's harder to see the effects of more invisible things like housing and schooling inequities. Generations deep, 400 years plus deep. That Jesus' life and the end of it was spent suffering means that suffering matters and isn't to be avoided at all costs, even as we aren't seeking to perpetuate suffering, the suffering of personal hatred and sick systems on the behalf of someone else. We don't avoid suffering, but we also don't keep it in circulation. Carnes is teaching me in this book that saying yes to suffering sometimes uh, creates more suffering in others. It doesn't take that out of circulation. It can strengthen the death-dealing forces of the world rather than driving a spoke into the wheel of injustice. But also sometimes saying no to suffering, avoiding suffering, can be a way of keeping suffering ones at bay, of wrapping ourselves in privilege and shutting out the reality of the world. We don't want to do either. We don't want to perpetuate suffering and we don't want to avoid it. In our Tuesday discussion group, uh, you're all invited to participate in this. It's 8 a.m. on Tuesday morning. We'll talk about what's queued up for the next week. This coming week, we have Jesus descended to the dead. This is a big pitch for a really difficult uh, week. Maybe you can help me know uh, how to talk about such a hard thing. But in this past Tuesday, we struggled to kind of conceive about how suffering and joy relate to each other and can be held together. Talked about how Jesus' whole life is characterized by suffering, but wasn't Jesus' whole life also characterized by joy, both the joy that he was experiencing, but also the joy that he was opening up for others. Like, should we characterize them as one or the other? I think the answer is that we should characterize Jesus's life as, 
as both of joy and suffering. Matt's reading from Philippians was written by Paul in prison, and that whole letter is a good primer on how joy and suffering, how life and death can and must kind of coexist, must exist simultaneously at the same time in the same space. It's possible for us because it was possible for Jesus and we are in Christ. We are united to the Jesus who has lived eternally with the joy of the Father and Spirit while being intimately and bodily acquainted with our grief, our pain, all the worst that this world gives to righteousness. You can also point to a passage like Hebrews 12, the beginning of which says, let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. This is, this is it. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so you will not grow weary or lose heart. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Great joy and great suffering in the same breath. As we walk, as we work through this difficult kind of discernment, understanding not just that suffering matters, but exactly how it matters. We can't take our eyes off Jesus, the sufferer. Jesus, the suffering servant of Isaiah, who manifests in our lives as the one who suffers with us. We have to never forget, not just that suffering matters, but that the suffering one matters. This should completely recenter our attention, should recenter our focus, it should recenter our politics and our hopes and our imaginations, recenter our, the words that we use. Because if the one who stands in the middle of our faith, in the middle of the creed, in the middle of our, of our lives, the one who stands at the center of history is the one who suffer. It means just not only that the suffering one matters, but that the suffering ones matter. The suffering ones in our midst have priority and matter. It seems that we finally hit a tipping point where the once inflammatory statement that Black Lives Matter is now so common, it is emblazoned on 16th Street in front of the White House. I admit that personally, I wasn't always uh, facile, facile with this, this phrase. It, didn't always, it wasn't always completely self-evident to me. But it wasn't the protests or it wasn't the mural painting that opened this up to me a couple years ago. It was actually an exploration into Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in which Jesus offers a series of blessings. We, we know this passage in Matthew 5 is the Beatitudes. Jesus goes on offering all these counterintuitive blessings aimed at particular kinds of people. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. In Luke's gospel, he just says, blessed are the poor. Blessed are the mourners. Blessed are the meek. 
Blessed are the hungry. Blessed are the thirsty for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Blessed are the reviled, the persecuted, the lied against for my sake, he says. In a sense, he's calling out each of these kinds of suffering and telling them that the, despite the ways they don't matter in the kingdoms of this world, that in the kingdom of God, which is the only context that really matters, that they matter. He's powerfully showing us that kingdom blessing is always formed around suffering ones. It should give us permission to speak up for and to center our attention and our affection on those around us who are suffering the most. If we have this like beatitudinal imagination, we won't be stingy with who we're blessing. And we will have a more expansive imagination for who we're trying to forge lives of intimacy with. Because in the lives of the suffering ones, we come in close contact with the suffering one. Jesus Christ, who suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. This should give us eyes to see. To see Jesus in the suffering around us. It should give us eyes to see the cross of Christ in the lynching trees and on the streets of Minneapolis in Louisville, in Brunswick, in Baltimore, in Ferguson, in Sanford, in Florida, in too many other places. It should give us courage to name names of the victims of tragic and preventable suffering and of those responsible at all levels. And it should make us take some responsibility. It should give us courage to call out the viral racism in our own lives. As we begin or continue on lifelong journeys of anti-racism towards the beloved community of the crucified and risen Jesus. It should give us hope that every bit of suffering matters to God and none of it goes unseen or unknown. Every bit of suffering matters to God. Not a sparrow falls to the ground without him taking notice. All of our wounds, even the wounds we inflict and perpetuate, are taken up into the wounded body of Christ. This is what we celebrate in a minute when we gather these simple elements from our own pantries. The body of Christ broken for us, the blood of Christ poured out, for the sins of the world, for our sins. Broken and poured out that we might be made whole. These wounds become scars. Even the resurrected Jesus bears his scars to those he loves, shows them that they are no longer gaping wounds, but they're evidences of God's grace, God's presence, God's healing, God's resurrecting power. I want to close with Isaiah 53, 4 through 5. 
Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Pray with me. Wounded healer, Jesus, by your own broken body, by the blood and water that pour from your side, that we have hope that any of this suffering matters, that the suffering ones deeply matter, that there's any accountability in our naming of names. Sometimes it just feels like we're yelling into a void, but you hear, you know. Suffering servant, Jesus, you have chosen to heal this world, to make this world new, to bind up the brokenhearted by your own brokenness, by your stripes, by your wounds. Lord, heal us. Let us be agents of that healing presence in this world. Lord, break us down where we are built up in ways that um, are not in alignment with you, not vulnerable, in ways that don't love who and how you love. Break us down when we're where we're not willing to be vulnerable and to suffer with others and to have compassion with others. Give us courage, Lord. Give us endurance. As my friend Andre says, don't let us be people of the algorithm, excited right now and then worn out and moving on to the next thing. Give us focus. Give us everything we need. And pray all this In Jesus' name, amen.